Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Hey, welcome. Today we have a prominent entrepreneur and the founder of Spokio, Harrison Tang with us. Harrison's known for his remarkable contributions to the data industry. He co-founded Spokio back in 2006, and I was actually just telling him, I remember actually when that came out. Since then, he has gone on to win prestigious awards, such as the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2015. He's co the W3C Credentials Community Group and became chairman at the Montjade Science and Technology Association Southern California in 2022. As a CEO and leader, Harrison's expertise contributes to the advancement and standardization of digital credentials. And what I'm really excited to focus on today is some of the ideas that Spokio has dealt with around data and privacy and how that's going to relate to the AI era. So in this episode, we're going to be taking a good look into what does truth mean in the era of AI. So Harrison, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Alan, for inviting me and thank you for being one of the Spokio OGs. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, yeah, it showed up. I was like, what is this? So I had to go look for it. But yeah, you guys went viral there for a little while. Tell us a little bit about the development and transformation of Spokio from when you first launched it to today. Cause I think that's a really good setup for where we see things going with AI. Yeah, definitely. So Spokio started back in 2006. We started out as a social network aggregator. So at that time, like different social networks just pops up like every other month, it seems like gets funding every other month. So we thought there was a unique opportunity to aggregate and streamline people's digital lifestyle. So that's how we started. Uh, it got quite a bit of attention, press and media and things like that, but we couldn't monetize it. We were making like four bucks a day, enough for one Starbucks coffee for like four people. So it's not sustainable. So we have to change and uh, evolve. And we stumbled across this social people search space in which instead of helping people search their own information. We're helping them search other people's information. So we evolved that into a social search engine and evolved it later to a people search engine and then people intelligence platform. And today we're one of the biggest direct to consumer people intelligence service that aggregates about 19 billion records. And we resolve it into about 600 million person entities to help about 15 million users a month to search connect, verify, and know who they're dealing with. Yep. Yeah. And so if you go on to Spokio now, you can search yourself, right? And basically you're finding all your social media accounts, addresses, people in your family, and other information. Is that right? Yes, correct. So we aggregate publicly available information. And it's kind of like uh, putting puzzle pieces together, right? To give you a holistic view. We have thousands of use cases. It's a very interesting market. It's a long tail market. So we cluster into a two by two matrix. So one is consumer connectors, finding contact information to connect with their long lost families and friends and so on, so on, so on. Consumer verifiers, consumer protectors. So they already know the person, but they just want to get referential information to know if they are saying who they say they are, right? Trust, but verify. So a famous blogger once said, Spokio before you date. 
right? So trust, but verify. <laughs> but what if I don't want the girl to know I'm married? But what if I didn't want the girl to really know that I had this terrible Friendster account in 2002? We can talk about it later, but there's only one truth, right? Like now, <laughs> there's maybe different facets of truth and certain things that might not be so glorious, but there's only one truth, right? So we're trying to help our users trust, but verify. And really trying to pursue that truth. And then there's the business connectors and business verifiers like fraud mitigations and, and so on and so on. And over the years, obviously, since you're collecting a lot of data on people, that's always going to raise the back hair of some people. And so like, tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you've had to overcome in the privacy space. Yeah. So before we kind of talk about privacy, we need to kind of define what privacy is. Because when we do surveys and we're like, hey, do you care about privacy? A lot of people said they do care. But when you ask them what privacy means, where in our survey, we asked if they're willing to pay $10 for it. And then only like 5% of people <laughs> are willing to pay for it. So before we kind of talk about privacy, we need to define what it is. And the academic definition of privacy is selective control of access to oneself and one's group. Okay, so selective control of access to one's self or one's group. And that's a Professor Owen's privacy regulation theory definition. So it's about selective disclosures. It's about access controls. It's not about no data or yes data. It's not about zero and one. It's a gray scale. So I'll just give a couple of examples. You know, like I might feel differently about privacy than, than you, for example. You know, I don't mind people know that I have four kids, four boys, one of them is still in the stomach, it's about to come out. But, uh, you know, other people might not want to share that. That's fine, right? And then there's also depending on what information you're talking about, right? So most people probably don't want to share their social security number, right? But their gender, I would say most people are okay sharing that. So it's context sensitive, right? It's even time sensitive. It's also sensitive to whom you're sharing with, right? Sharing information with your mom is totally fine, in my opinion, but sharing with some random guy on the street is different, right? So privacy is about selected control, selected disclosure, and it's contextual. So the solution is not zero and one. The solution lies in one, self-sovereignty of identity, which doesn't exist today, as one, and two, transparency the right to know what's out there. That's discovery. And lastly, it's about access control. So it's a huge problem. The good news and the bad news is that there is no solutions out there that can solve that. But hopefully Spokio can play a small part, a humble part in advancing that future. So it's fascinating. Let's talk a little bit more about the self-sovereignty. So you're saying there's no solution for that. So what would a solution for that look like? So when we talk about identity, we need to break a big problem into its smaller parts. So identity has three dimensions. The first dimension that most people don't think about is existence, is being, it's entity. If you don't have existence, if you don't have being, you don't have identity. And the second part is what most people focus on, which is about data attributes. Data attributes, like I'm a male, 40, Asian, that data attribute is a knowledge it's not existence. And knowledge is attached to an entity and existence. The third dimension is access control. So if you look at English dictionary definition about what identity is, is characteristics and attributes 
about an entity, a distinct, unique entity, right? So that covers the first two dimensions. But the third part that a lot of people forgot to mention is access control, right? Because zeros and ones that sits in some random databases, no one cares about that. It's just zeros and ones, right? <laughs> so you have to be accessible. So uh, privacy, security is all under that dimension. So you have to kind of break it into smaller parts. And when you talk about self-sovereignty, right? A control over someone's identity. The most realistic solution lies in access control. And here's the reason. The reason is, one, most information about you is actually not created by you. So when you're saying your data, that's different from data about you. Like I'll give a very specific example. Your driver license is actually not created by you. So who is it owned by? Is it owned by you or owned by DMV? In most of the Western legal precedences, the ownership of the knowledge, ownership of the content is actually owned by the creator of the knowledge, creator of the content, right? So I think most people will agree it's owned by the DMV. So how do you actually achieve self-sovereignty of your identity? Well, imagine if all identity access has to go through you. So for example, furthering that DMV analogy, if you got pulled by the cop, hopefully not, but if you're pulled by the cop, <laughs> right? Like the cop wants to see your driver license, the cop doesn't just call the DMV for the driver license, right? You pull the driver's license out from your wallet. So imagine if all the identity transactions is done that way through your digital wallet or identity wallet, then effectively you achieve self-sovereignty of your identity. And that is the core concept in what's called as SSI, self-sovereign identity. It's this idea that what's called identity triangle. Okay, identity triangle is verifiers and searchers in one place, data subject, the person being searched, and lastly, the issuers, right, the data sources. Now, completing that data triangle and making sure that the data subject intermediate the identity transactions. When that happens, self-sovereignty of identity or SSI can be achieved. Right, so obviously the state probably has very little interest in self-sovereignty. They wanna make sure that they have the identifying stuff to categorize and control, right? So it sounds like almost analogous to like a crypto. Actually, some government agencies are quite supportive of SSI actually. So they have been actually a big force behind open standards such as verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers, which are one of the technologies, two of the fundamental technologies in self-sovereign identity. Right, that's great. So it's an interesting concept. And I guess what I would go back to before we move into the AI realm is you talked about this access control, right, as a key. And so I guess Spokio, right, is gathering publicly available information but they're making it available to third parties or whoever's looking for it. So how does access control you as the person controlling access to your data? How does that factor in with something like Spokio? First of all, we do have a basically a one-step opt-out. So if you don't want your information, right, to be listed on Spokio, you can do that, right? So that's one form of control is the right to forget. And then when you sign up for the service, we ask you for why you're using the service. You can actually pick one of the pre-selects or you can actually type in a free form field, right? To basically stating like what's your intent. And if it hits one of the 
use cases that we don't allow. For example, certain use cases are regulated, like employment screening and things like that. We will actually not let you use the service. Okay, we will not take your payment. So this is a beginning step toward what's called authentication, right? So we are working on not just the two-factor authentications, you know, like SMS, OTP, those kind of security things. But in addition to that, we're working on authenticating business users for their appropriate use cases, such as using site inspections and all those things. So at the end of the day, in access control, there's something called the three A's. Okay, the first one is authentication. It's basically establishing the linkage between the physical self. The physical world to the digital world. Okay, so if you are trying to access your account, your physical self want to access your digital identity, your digital account, that problem is called authentication. So that's one. The second one is authorization. So authorization makes sure that that person has the right access to the right resource at the right time. Basically, making sure that you have the right key. To the right room, okay. That's authorization, but it actually doesn't solve the problem of who has the right key. That's authentication's problem. And the third one is called audit. Basically, you can think of it as making sure that there's accountability to these access. So that's the three A's in security. It's a top problem, as you can see. So <laughs> Spokio is actually investing in all these areas right now as we speak, right? And actually, over the past. Few years and decades, we are actually ISO two seven zero zero one certified. You know that's a security standards, open standards, and you know there's still a lot of room for improvements and a lot of works to be done. Earlier, you talked about you know when you survey people, they won't pay ten bucks to protect their privacy. So there is a sense I have that privacy it's like something that sounds good to people, but then they don't really think about what it means or how valuable it actually is, right? But we have people spending all day tweeting on Twitter their intimate thoughts, and then they're worried about privacy, right? So it seems like we have a very confused regulatory and understanding. And the other thing that I always get to is things like electronic medical records, where we have this elaborate privacy regime with HIPAA that prevents a lot of research, even though, I mean, the privacy threat is very low. Most of these records are anonymized. And we make these people go through crazy hurdles that prevent actual cures and new ways of treating people from being found. For some abstract thought of privacy that I don't think anyone could actually articulate, what the harm that would come to them would be and how important that harm. Seems like we really stopped from doing a lot of stuff because of these undefined harms. And that's why I like how you, each concept, you really broken down into very small components so you can understand here are the issues around us. It's not just black and white. Yeah, I think a lot of people pay lip service to what they care about privacy. And for us, we really do care about it. And then, as you can see, we have invested quite a bit of thought and technology in making that happen. But like I said, it's a very, very tough problem, right? And we want to invest in it, not just because, you know, quoting Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, right? With great power comes with great responsibilities. Not just because of that, but if you want to do data models, AIs and things like that, well, guess what? Modeling is getting commoditized. Running XGBoost or those kind of functions is not that hard. 
is actually about can you get access to the right data? It's actually about can you make sure the data is prepared, is clean, like it doesn't have biases. Those are the big challenges. So it's not just about privacy. It's also about data preparations and all that stuff, right? Data profiling, data ingestions, but privacy and security is a one key component in actually making sure that your data and AI muscle is built. Yeah, well, so you took us right where I was going. So let's talk about that. So you talk about with Spokio now in the age of the internet. So you're a source of the things that they would use to pursue truth, right? All the aggregator of the potential truths, right? So when you look at moving into an AI-driven world, what does truth start to mean? I mean, it feels to me like we're on the verge of an explosion of ability to generate content, to maybe generate all sorts of information or sources of information that have varying levels of truth to them. So how do you think about this concept of truth in AI? Yeah, I think since we're a data company, we like to have clear definitions. So we need to define what truth means first before we can actually figure out how do we help people pursue that, right? So truth is a property in accordance to reality. Okay, and what's reality? What's truth? Well, in reality, truth is high dimensional. So what does high dimensional mean? High dimensional means that it's more than just space-time. So space is X, Y, Z that you can see, time you can experience up to the current time, right? But there's more dimension than that. No, it could be weight. Weight is a dimension. Weight is, uh, in data science terminology, is called feature. That's a feature too. So high dimension just means that in reality, the dimensions may be thousands, if not tens of thousands. And since our perception can only perceive so many dimensions, we cannot see the whole truth, actually. So let me kind of give an example. I have my teacup right here, right? So that's a three-dimensional object. If you live in a world where you can only see a 2D plane, then you would think that this is just like a rectangle or a trapezoid, for example. But then when you flip it over, you think it's a circle, but you would never know it's a cup because all you can see is two-dimensional, is a two-dimensional plane. You can only see a cut. Now, similarly, let's put it into a reality where we can see, you know, the 3D and time, but you don't know whether this cup will end up in the trash can later because you don't have a full view of the full dimension of time. You only have half of it. You only know the history and what's happening right now. So humans can only see three and a half dimensions see and experience three and a half dimensions. And if the reality is thousands of dimensions, then how can you know the full truth? You can only see different perspectives. So that when I said there's only one truth, that's my belief. Now, people might have different beliefs. I have no way to invalidate or validate other people's beliefs here because I can only see part of it. But I do think, I do believe that there's only one reality and we all see different perspectives is only when you can actually aggregate all these perspectives. It's only when you know that, hey, this cup looks like a circle at the bottom, looks like a trapezoid on the side, looks like a different circle at the top, then you can start piece out all these different informations and get a clearer picture of the reality. So that's the definition of truth, right? 
when some people argue that there's different truth, I don't believe that. I think there's only one. It's just that because your perception is limited, you can only see one side. And sometimes that side is different from what you view from the other angle. Interesting. How do you fit something like the concept of disinformation into that, right? I'm creating an alternative untrue thing that I give multiple dimensions to, right? So how do you square that with your definition? <laughs> so first of all, let's define what disinformation means, right? So misinformation is incorrect information shared with good or bad intent. Malinformation is correct information shared with malintent, put out of context. And disinformation is the worst. Disinformation is incorrect information, right? Shared with malintent, right? So how do you know something is truth versus misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation? The truth is you have to go into philosophy. I've been asking this question for a decade, actually. <laughs> I think some people have been working on it for 3,000 years. But yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I can't find any good information or good solutions in technology or computer science or physics for that matter. You actually have to go into philosophy. And in philosophy, there is something called criteria of truth. When you don't have a full picture of the truth because it's high dimensional, you can only set certain criteria to give you a better sense of what's happening. And these are the top criteria. The first criteria is called consistency. It's basically saying that, hey, there's like 10 people say it's true, right? Or best case, a million people say it's true. And 99% of them say it's true, then it's probably true. That's consistency, right? It's kind of like think of it as a majority rule. So in blockchain, the truth is majority. If more than half of the node operator says true, then it's true, right? Because I was asking that question, how do you know in a permissionless system, how do you know that this transaction actually happened? The truth is they don't know. It's just the majority of the nodes says that it's true, then it becomes true and it's being written to the ledger. So that's a very clear example of using consistency criteria to tell truth. The other one is authority. So your birthday from DMV is probably more true than a claim from Harrison Tang. <laughs> right, so that's authority. There's something called correspondence. Correspondence is how does this piece of information correspond to the physical world? So the problem of authentication, biometric authentications, face ID, those kind of things, that's our correspondence. And there is also coherence. So coherence is saying that, hey, if I'm like five foot three and 40, I'm probably not like 300 or 400 pounds or something. No, it's like an outlier detection, kind of abnormally detection kind of problem. So there's about seven or eight criterias. And the truth is that you can't just use one criteria to tell whether something's true or something's not. You actually had to check all of them to give you a better sense of what's true and what's not. And that's why when you earlier you mentioned, is Spokio source of truth? The answer is no, we're not source of truth. We don't know the truth. But what we can do is we can give you the information, different criteria so that you can get a better sense of what is true and what's not. And that's the difference between, since we're talking about philosophy a little bit here, that's the difference between metaphysics, which is about existence, and epistemology, which is the how. Spokio is the how to help you find out the what 
not the what. Right. So when you apply this to AI, I guess, in a practical sense, how do you see these concepts that you just laid out about here are the criteria of truth, right? That we don't really know what it is. We can only weight the criteria, right? And come to some decision. Yeah. So quite simple. Consistency is the easiest. Aggregate multiple sources. Don't just take one source's word for it. Aggregate like 30 of them. Going forward, it's like costless to create sources of information. So like, can't you just go create a million of them and be like, oh, I'm going to be right because I created a million sources of information. And if you're going to use, because obviously you're using the other criteria as well, but you see what I'm meaning? Like, does AI enable you to just infinitely fool these criteria because you can just create it costlessly? Yes. So you have to actually put the account accountability to the creator, to that digital identity. So you can potentially detect using AI algorithms to detect whether this is this content is generated by AI or not. But really, that's a cat and mouse game. And that's not to say we shouldn't pursue that route. We should, right? But that said, I don't believe that that will solve everything. I don't think that's the panacea to solve the problem that I just stated. I think the identity of the creators plays a pivotal role to actually helping us understand what is true and what's not. And the reason is because you can't put accountability on some algorithm or you can't put the accountability on some robots. Well, you can put accountability, ultimately it flows to a human being right, or an entity ultimately. So at the end of the day, I think the reputation of the identity is key to this. Provenance, lineage of the data that allows you to trace back to who created this original content is quite important. And a very key criteria of truth, authority, corresponds to the concept I just mentioned. Is this creator can be trusted, right? Does he, she, or it, right, the organization has a trustable history, right, in creating dependable content? Is it authoritative? That's a very, very key criteria as well. So how do you see that playing out? Like, is this something where the... AI companies are going to have to come together and say, you know, like recently there was the watermark, I believe, I think it was open AI. So they would install a watermark on things. Is it a government role? Is it a AI on AI role? Like the cat and mouse game you said there, or all of it sort of, I guess. I think it's a collaboration to be very frank. I think the AI companies, a lot of them specialize in data modeling. That's one piece of it. You know, you can use abnormally detections to detect and tell whether this content is created by AI or not, right? And so that's one area. Identity companies like Spokio can help too, right? To help you vet through and verify, for lack of a better term, know your authors, right? You said know your customer, you can know your authors, right? Who created this content, right? So identity companies can help too. And you think they could do that at scale? That you could say, given that we're going to be producing just ungodly amounts of information out of these things. Yes, I do believe so. Because at the end of the day, Spokio is verifying identities at a huge scale as well. So I do think so. But the key I'm trying to say is, I think it takes the collaborative efforts from different industries, different organizations, including the government, right? I think government's role is pivotal in actually setting out objectives. I don't think government should be prescriptive and imperative on 
what you should do, right? Like a good example is GDPR law, right? I think GDPR law done a good job setting out what are the data rights of digital identities. You know, so I think it done a good job, but personally, I felt that forcing companies to show that pop-up, cookie pop-up all the time, that's kind of annoying, personally. <laughs> I said that was like, to me, that was the only achievement of GDPR. That and so that European nonprofits could tax American tech. So, you know, I think governments play a pivotal role too, right? Setting out objectives and let the tech companies, companies or people in general to figure out the how, right? So I think it takes a collaborative effort. It's not just one person or one organization can solve this problem alone. So when you talk about objectives, since we're focused on government here, I can interpret that in a lot of different ways. So yes, an objective could be, well, a good example of just some of the most recent interview is to follow the law. But you could be in a driverless car and everybody's going 90 miles an hour with the speed limit and you going 55 is suboptimal, right? I mean, you're following the law, but you're actually creating a dangerous situation. So do you think it's for the government to come in and regulate what these objectives are and establish them as the parameters and then require companies to comply with that? Or, or do you see it in a different way? So Spokio go with what's called OKR model. It stands for Objective and Key Results, right? It's a famous management by objective framework, right? Popularized by Google. Well, they got it from Andy Grove at Intel. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So in OKRs, there's three concepts, right? There is the objectives, which is what goal you're trying to achieve, right? So do this in order to achieve what, right? And the second one is key results are basically metrics, right? Grow X, some kind of metrics from X to Y, right? In a certain time frame. And lastly is initiative, like what you should do, right? So I think governments should be focused on objectives and maybe key results as well, right? What are the key results and metrics that helps you track progress of the objective you're trying to achieve? But that said, I don't think governments should be prescribing exactly what you should do, right? The government shouldn't be like, hey, you should do this project. You should do this initiative. You should go brush your teeth tomorrow. Maybe that's a good idea. But uh, <laughs> I'm not sure government needs to go into those kind of details. And OKRs can ladder, right? The objective doesn't have to be as high level, as cloudy, as just like, hey, you know, create a better world, right? You can be more specific, right? You can ladder the OKRs, but there's a huge difference between what objective or goals, right? Versus projects and initiatives and tasks. One of my big fears though is, you know, and I think Mark Andreessen has been talking about this. Does this become a way for the government to essentially regulate all tech? So are we going to lose sort of permissionless innovation? Say the government even just has an unclear objective and you could get sued over. You know, like I was thinking the other day, someone was talking to me about how we should have an agency that reviews all the models. And I was just sitting there thinking about Google trying to get Gmail out in like 2003 or whatever it was, while Microsoft sitting there lobbying at the institution of Congress to make sure Hotmail stays the standard. And is the danger of AI going to effectively create that situation where now the government's a gatekeeper on innovation? I think there is a big difference 
between setting the law, lawmaking versus enforcement. A lot of people don't make this distinction between the two. And most of the time, people are more annoying with unfair enforcement than the law, right? Like earlier, I used the example of GDPR, right? Like other than some specifics, like who in the world is going to argue about data rights? I'm not going to argue against that. But I think the problem that a lot of people have, right, like is the enforcement. Like, for example, I doubt the law says you have to use Gmail or Hotmail. I'm not familiar with those laws, but I doubt it's that, right? The problem is with unfair enforcement, and that's a huge problem. And I think we should address that. But I don't think if the laws are properly made, right, if it's focused on common objectives that most Americans, the majority of Americans believe in, the common values, that's a good thing. Like, I don't see why we shouldn't embrace it. If people interpret different ways and have unfair targeted enforcements towards certain individual, that's a completely different things. So one thing when you were talking that kind of just occurred to me, I, don't, I haven't really thought through this, but is one of the roles of government to kind of provide some of these, not sources of truth, but verifiable information that would be available to everyone that they could use to create sources of truth, it's like using its data or focusing on providing tools to people so that they can then go make their own interpretations of what's the source of truth for them. But at least the government is giving them some level set of information. Yeah, you know, government is already doing that. Like, for example, your driver license is issued by the DMV and your passport is issued by the Department of Homeland Security, right? So government is already doing that. It's one of the trusted issuers. Again, I wouldn't use the word source of truth. I don't think there is a source of truth, okay? I think there can be multiple trusted issuers that can help you understand the truth, but there's not going to be one because at the end of the day, any issuers, even governments can make mistakes. So yes, I think government's already doing that. There are initiatives that different departments are working on. For example, Department of Homeland Security is advocating for verifiable credentials, open standards to actually issue these digital credentials to the public. Different DMV departments from different states are leveraging ISO, mobile driver license standards, right, to issue these digital credentials to your wallets, right, whether it's Apple wallets or Google wallets. So it is already happening right now. Yeah, that's interesting. It's obviously a role the government plays, and it'll be interesting to see if that role is developed and expanded as a result of AI, like in a world of washed information, maybe the most important thing becomes like some information that whether, you know, obviously you say like sometimes driver's license have the wrong information on them, like you move, right? You don't change your license, but it at least has a verifiable part of it, right? Where you can trace it back to a source and you know the identity of that source and it becomes almost a service provider of that kind of information in the AI world. Yes. So most of these uh, digital credential standards leverages cryptography, not cryptocurrency, to make sure that it's easily verifiable and temper resistant. So it means that if this particular piece of credential is being tempered with, like someone added that data, that digital signature would not validate, would not work, right? The verification will actually fail. So yes, these digital credentials, one could argue that it's actually even more secure 
than your physical credentials because these cryptographic technologies are actually quite sophisticated. There won't be any fake IDs out there to get into bars with, right? So, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about where Spokio's role might be or a company like Spokio in the merging AI world. So just talk a little bit about your future plans in regards to AI, if any. Yeah, you know, I think one of the coolest things about AI, first of all, there's different types of AI. So I think most people right now is referring to large language models because uh, AIs can be used for computer vision. It can be used for business analytics. One of the hardest things right now in AI is neural network. Actually, neural networks in time series predictions a lot of times creates overfit problems. So AI and neural network is not a solution to everything. But to answer your question in regards to AI, LLMs, large language models, I think one of the most exciting thing about large language models is their ability to kind of understand the underlying context of our natural language. And it is going to be very, very good for actually creating what's called a software agent. Basically an agent that acts on our behalf to do a certain task. So for example, you can actually leverage large language models to create a software agent to automate a lot of analyst tasks. And a lot of analysts are actually Spokio users today. So I think that's uh, one kind of the high level ideas. I'm, obviously there's other ideas like such as leveraging embeddings to actually create and find similar names and so on and so on. So there's other more technical things that these technologies, specifically NLP, natural language processing and large language models can help. But I think the one of the most exciting thing is this agent, right? Software agent kind of things to help automate a lot of work processes and tasks. And that would be on the side of your customer coming in as an analyst who's interacting. And at this point, they could just use one of your software. It would automate that part. Is that how you were thinking about it? Yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it is still kind of far away. That's one of the most cutting edge research today, right? In regards to how do you leverage large language models? Like how do you actually not just do prompts and then get answers back, but actually automate and string a bunch of prompts together, right? So I think that's one of the most exciting and cutting edge areas today. And you had the auto, or is it agent GPT or auto GPT that was an... Auto ML and auto GPT, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Well, great. Well, Harrison, thanks so much for your time today. It's been really good and we really appreciate you coming on the pod and good luck in the future at Spokio. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot, Alan. AI, government and the future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, thanks for listening.